From Bloomberg Law, you're listening to Uncommon Law. I'm Adam Allington. All right, please be seated. Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. 330 days after George Floyd was killed, it took the jury about 10 and a half hours to return a unanimous verdict, which Hennepin County Judge Peter Cahill read aloud. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Same caption, verdict count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. After rendering the guilty verdict, Chauvin no longer had the presumption of innocence, and the court granted a motion by the state to remand him immediately into police custody. He was then placed in handcuffs and led out of the courtroom to await sentencing, which Cahill said could take about eight weeks and what will surely be an appeal after that. So, obviously, there are many shoes left to drop before the Chauvin trial is completely behind us, not least of which is the upcoming trial later this summer of the three other MPD officers who were present during Floyd's murder. But with me here to discuss some initial reactions is Barbara McQuaid. She was a former U.S. attorney under Barack Obama and now a professor of practice at the University of Michigan Law School. Counselor, thanks for taking the time to join me. Oh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So my first question is, what's your sense of what this verdict means for the country, that we didn't have an acquittal or a hung jury? And what, if anything, does it signal going forward? Well, I don't know that we should um, overstate what it means. You know, I, I don't know it means that well, we, we no longer have uh, problems between police and communities in America anymore because of this verdict. Um, you know, one of the things that was different about this case from many police excessive force cases is, number one, it was captured on videotape. Uh, and that is still the exception and not the rule. But more and more it's happening because we do have just about every spectator walking around these days has a, a cell phone camera. Um, and the other thing about this case that was different is George Floyd really posed no threat to Derek Chauvin. And so often in these cases, what we have is a police officer who says, I feared for my life, even though maybe, you know, after the fact, it turns out the person was unarmed, but they were reaching for a cell phone or a wallet and the officer panicked and and shot the individual. And although those are tragic cases, oftentimes it's very difficult for prosecutors to prove guilt in those cases because an officer, you know, the law is is really stacked in favor of officers to make split-second decisions and to protect them from making the wrong decisions in those situations. But in this case, where everybody could see the video and could see that George Floyd was subdued, handcuffed on the ground, um, and was not posing a threat, I think that made this case an exceptionally strong one for the prosecution. You talked about the role that the video played, but in terms of clearing the standard of beyond reasonable doubt, the defense had a number of arguments to make. But obviously, it looked like the jury just didn't buy into those explanations as much as what they saw with their own eyes. Yes? I think so. But I I think the reasonable doubt part and, you know, the defense was, I think, did a good job strategically in choosing where they were going to poke a hole in this regard. And that was the element of causation. So we can all see with our own eyes what Derek Chauvin did, you know, uh, in the law they call it the actus reus, the act of the crime. Um, and the jury has to always kind of infer what the person's intent was based on 
uh, you know, what they said and what they did. The part the jury can never see is the causation, right? They're not medical experts. They can't see inside the body of George Floyd to know what it was that actually uh, took the life out of him. And so uh, the both sides had to rely on experts to explain to the jury what was their theory. And by putting up an expert who gave a different opinion from the prosecution's opinion, you know, I think there are some jurors who would say, well, that's enough for reasonable doubt, even though, you know, I kind of like the prosecution's experts better. The other one disagreed. Is that enough for reasonable doubt? I'm not sure. Um, But nonetheless, uh, it seems that in the end here, these jurors were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of the logic. Uh, You know, I think they don't just believe what people say, but they need to understand and accept the logic. And I think that, uh, you know, Dr. Tobin was the pulmonologist who testified twice, first in the case in chief and then in rebuttal, which I think was probably a very smart decision by the prosecution because he was a very persuasive witness who said that the cause of death was um, the lack of oxygen to his lungs. And that really was probably the only place where the defense could have created some reasonable doubt is that thing that uh, is beyond the observation of the jurors. Given that Chauvin was found guilty of second-degree murder, the lesser two charges won't be factored into sentencing. For second-degree murder, the average prison sentence for a defendant like Chauvin with no prior criminal background is 12 and a half years. However, due to a process known as a Blakely hearing, prosecutors are asking the court to approve an upward departure from sentencing guidelines that could see Chauvin serving as many as 40 years in prison. How significant is that, in your opinion? Typically, um, any factor that raises a sentence above the sentencing guidelines base offense level must be submitted to a jury for finding beyond a reasonable doubt, or the defendant can waive that, which he did in this case, which is probably strategically a wise decision that, you know, the jury that convicted him is probably not one that is going to be friendly to him. And so he'll probably get a fairer shake from a judge who has done this many times before and will be probably a little more clinical about the whole thing. But um, you mentioned that uh, the highest conviction here, the murder, second degree murder is the one that he will be sentenced for. And that's right. That's the highest. Um, But the others don't just drop away. They are there as a backstop. And so if for some reason um, the conviction should be reversed uh, on a legal issue, on appeal, um, then there is still either the third degree murder or the manslaughter count would, would still be there as a fallback. So even with this verdict, Derek Chauvin's legal battles are far from over. He's almost assured to challenge the verdict based on a number of grounds, including arguing that the jury was prejudiced by intense media coverage, or even before the trial began, Judge Cahill ruled that the third-degree deranged mind murder charge was not applicable to Derek Chauvin. However, a higher court disagreed with that assessment and ordered Cahill to add it back in. So... It would seem like there's no shortage of routes for appeal here. Yeah, there are often, you know, I think what some people would refer to as legal technicalities, but, you know, the technicalities matter. There's a lot of consequence for them. There's another issue with regard to the second degree murder charge. You recall that's the one that's felony murder. And so you have to prove he committed a felony. And in the course of committing that felony, somebody died. In this instance, it is an assault on George Floyd. There's a theory uh, that is true in many states. The case law is a little different in Minnesota, but I think it's a potential issue for appeal. And that is that an, an assault cannot form the basis for a felony murder because every murder has necessarily an assault component to it. And so if every assault could serve as a basis for felony murder, every homicide 
could be murder and there'd be no such thing as manslaughter, which is, you know, a lesser level of intent. It has to be an independent felony. Like you go into a bank and you intend to rob the bank and your gun goes off by accident or even a police officer shoots someone else, you're liable for that murder because it's an independent felony. So just one other reason why it's important to have some of those backstop charges in case either of these issues get resolved uh, against the prosecution on appeal, there is, you know, always at least they have three three possible options for fallback. Barbara McQuaid is a former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Professor, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Less than 24 hours after the verdict was announced, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a sweeping Justice Department probe into the practices and culture of the Minneapolis Police Department. Good morning. Yesterday's verdict in the state criminal trial does not address potentially systemic policing issues in Minneapolis. Today, I am announcing that the Justice Department has opened a civil investigation to determine whether the Minneapolis Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing. Garland said the civil investigation will be conducted separately from a federal criminal investigation into George Floyd's death that DOJ had previously announced. Despite Tuesday's ruling, many activists say that the systemic problems facing policing today are still nowhere close to being addressed. Somil Trivedi is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. Somil, welcome to the program. What was your reaction to the news yesterday? Well, in many ways, it's a relief. Uh, And I think it was clear to the jury what the evidence was and encouraging that they weren't swayed by some of the defense's more disingenuous dodges, right? Derek Chauvin is entitled to, uh, was entitled to a rigorous defense. His defense team did everything they could, but that doesn't mean that some of the arguments weren't more outlandish than others and that some of them weren't more racially charged than others, right? I mean, I think we saw from the very outset an attempt to paint the scene as some chaotic BLM protest, right? Which again, our eyes told us was not true. The crowd was small and compliant. And that George Floyd was some sort of super predator, right? Able to overcome 10 policemen um, with his super strength. Uh, Also not borne out by the video, easily disproven. But they went with those tactics anyway, I think in the hopes that they could tap into some latent, if not racism, then doubt about Uh, how difficult a policeman's job is in sort of quote-unquote chaotic situations. Um, They took their biggest swing and and they missed. I don't want to downplay the significance of the verdict here. And we don't know what Chauvin's sentence will be yet. But do you think this case represents a turning point in repairing the relationship between communities of color and law enforcement? Yeah, I I think um, sentencing is a long way from here. Appeal is even longer away. I hope by the time all of that's happening, that it's a non-issue. I hope that the country has moved so far beyond this case or any individual instances of police misconduct to 
a much broader discussion of the kind of transformations we need to prevent these killings from happening in the first place. So I am glad for the attention that the Derek Chauvin trial garnered. I think it educated a lot of people about what is wrong about policing. But I hope the next time something related to Derek Chauvin's trial happens, we don't care a lick because we're too busy working on the systemic change that we need. So, Mill, I hear what you're saying, that change won't happen overnight. But at the very least, it seems like the trial of Derek Chauvin is a turning point. I mean, just last week, another officer in the Twin City suburbs was also charged with manslaughter in the accidental shooting of Dante Wright, a fact which surely had to be influenced by what was going on in the Chauvin trial. Yeah, you know, I'm of two minds. In in one sense, of course, it is a relief for the community and and proof that our justice system isn't totally broken, that we can get a verdict when the evidence is this obvious, right? On the other hand... Um, I don't want the criminal justice system to be the proxy for real justice and change anymore. So what I want to see going forward are things like ratcheting up the standard for use of force so that police can't um, even think about getting away with something like this in the first place. I want to abolish qualified immunity. I want to make it much easier to fire cops for lower level offenses than this so that they never have a chance uh, to use force against people in the first place. So it's those kinds of really non-criminal uh, changes that we need to see to make sure that we prevent these going forward. And then the biggest change of all is getting police, especially armed police, entirely out of the business of low-level enforcement altogether, right? That's at the root of so many of these killings is... Dante Wright driving with expired tags and some air fresheners hanging from his window. George Floyd maybe passing a fake $20 bill. I mean, who cares? Why are we sending multiple armed police into these situations only to escalate them um, when society barely cares about these offenses in the first place? And there are much better ways to deal with them, including reinvesting in the communities that George Floyd and Dante Wright come from um, instead of dealing with every problem with policing. So those are the changes I want to see. So, Mo, throughout this trial, state prosecutors have gone out of their way to say that they weren't trying to put the entire institution of policing on trial, which it sounds a little bit like you're saying is exactly what needs to happen. But don't you think this case and other recent examples where we see officers being fired or charged with crimes or even put in jail, is itself a deterrent against bad policing? I think the guilty verdicts themselves and coming as quickly as they did send a signal. And I do think that the the state is trying to send an additional deterrent signal by seeking these ag- aggravating factors. There's no question about it. Um, do I think they will operate in that way? Probably not. I mean, In the criminal justice system that applies to black and brown folks every day, we know that these kinds of enhancements are just used to unnecessarily ratchet up up sentences, right? And that they have no real deterrent effect. The deterrent is getting caught or not. Whether you end up spending 15 or 20 or 40 years in jail just doesn't factor into the calculation all that often. So as a general matter, I'd like to see us rely a whole lot less on these sentencing enhancements. 
but I understand why they're doing it here. Despite the sense of relief that many people may have felt with Chauvin's guilty verdict, others point out that some people may never be able to move on from the trauma of that video. Tiffany Jeffers is an associate professor of law and legal practice at the Georgetown University Law Center. Professor Jeffers, what was your emotional response when you heard the verdict? Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. I was happy. I was grateful that George Floyd's family will receive uh, justice through the criminal justice system as they are entitled to. I thought to myself on a personal level what this means to the Black community at large, whether this is justice for us collectively, um, what it means for us. So I had questions. I was dealing with my own personal trauma, thinking about what this means as a lawyer, what this means as a Black woman, what this means as a law teacher. Um, all while also feeling some sense of relief that the criminal justice system did in fact get it right this time. In an op-ed for Bloomberg Law, you wrote that not since the photographs of the bruised and battered body of a 14-year-old Emmett Till lying in his casket has the world had to grapple with this type of collective trauma. Tiffany, I'm guessing that that trauma that you wrote about doesn't necessarily just go away or even become easier to deal with now that the trial is over. So what have I left off the table? Is there anything you feel that it's important to reiterate? I don't think there's anything you've left off the table, Adam, but since I have um, the privilege of being on this platform, I do just want to say to um, Black friends that are listening um, to take care of yourself because this is traumatic and and be involved and be engaged to the level that you are emotionally able to. But importantly, your mental health, your physical health, your spiritual health, all of those things matter. And um, we have collectively, we don't know each other, all Black people don't know each other, but we have collectively experienced trauma through our existence in this country as Black bodies. Uh, And so if you need to disengage Um, then disengage and don't feel guilty about that. In your mind, does the verdict against Derek Chauvin do anything to help people move on or process some of that trauma? Are you hopeful that the rule of law might ultimately help bridge the gap between police and communities of color? That's a difficult question because I am generally hopeful and I will always, because of my legal education and the work that I've devoted my life to in the law, I always want to be hopeful and believe in rule of law and the ability of our criminal justice system to navigate these issues in a way that ultimately results in justice. But what I've seen over the course of my life and and just looking historically at uh, lynchings and killings of black and brown people by police uh, without accountability, it's difficult to grasp onto this one verdict as what's turning the tide for the many, many lives that have been taken wrongfully um, at the hands of police. But again, I am hopeful. I think this is a step in the right direction. I think there has to be some type of oversight for local police departments, and there has to be some type of real accountability. It can't just be fraternal orders of police writing statements in response to Black Lives Matter movements. I guess the acrimony between the two sides, the police and the people, can't, can't continue. And I hope that this is a step in the right direction, um, 
but I think it might get worse before it gets better. As a professor, I'm curious as to how this case will be talked about in classrooms and law schools. In your mind, was the Chauvin trial an exercise in calling legal balls and strikes? Or do you think that it'll be part of a broader discussion about issues of race and the legal system? Yeah, so the so legal education is shifting to incorporate considerations of implicit bias and power structures in the law. And so 16 years ago, when I was a law student, the law was presented in a way that made students feel that it was completely objective. And, hey, we're just calling balls and strikes, you know, this is not, we don't take into consideration race, gender, any types of identity. The law is just the law and it's applied to everyone equally. And we know that's not true. We know that the authors of American law were white heterosexual land-owning males. And so without the authenticity of the beginning framework of where the law came from, then there can never be a reckoning of how the law has um, structurally and systematically disenfranchised, discriminated against working class people, poor people, people of color, people of different genders, you know, and so without that acknowledgement that the law is based in white supremacy, um, we can't ever overcome uh, the reality that there's still a lot of work to be done. Tiffany Jeffers is an associate professor of law and legal practice at the Georgetown University Law Center. Tiffany, thanks again for your time. Adam, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that is where we'll leave the story for now. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks to everyone for listening and recommending the podcast to your friends and colleagues. It really helps, and I do appreciate it.